Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Lewis, for the opportunity to be able to preach today. Um, it is always a great blessing to me to be able to do this, and it is a privilege, and I recognize that, and I'm very appreciative. Um, but this morning, we'll be in one of the most wonderful sections of Scripture located in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, and Lewis mentioned this earlier, but this is um, part three of our three-year study on the Beatitudes. So the first Sunday in January 2021, I did the first four Beatitudes. The first Sunday in January 2022, I did the next two. And then today in 2023, we'll finish those off uh, with the final two Beatitudes. But basically, what we said in those last two studies was that Jesus is giving a description in these eight Beatitudes, his own description of the Christian. These Beatitudes are Christianity 101. They are an entry-level course for anyone who would call themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. The Beatitudes of the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 are, simply put, Christ's description of every Christian. They provide the characteristics of somebody who has been regenerated, somebody who has been transformed out of the kingdom of darkness and into the light of God's dear Son. And as we saw last time, the person who is characterized by these Beatitudes is a blessed person. They are a happy person. They are a blissful person. Their state in life has nothing to do with their current circumstances and everything to do with their relationship to God. You say, well, why are they so special? Why are they like that? Well, it has nothing to do with their natural disposition or their natural state. The person who identifies with these Beatitudes can do so simply and only because of the grace of God. Each Beatitude is totally a description which is produced by grace alone through the work of the Holy Spirit. No man or woman naturally conforms to the descriptions given in the Beatitudes. We must be clear on that from the beginning. And in these Beatitudes, we see the essential difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The kingdom of God is completely, totally opposite from the world. Perhaps we could put it like this. In the kingdom of God, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. In the kingdom, those who lose their life will, who keep their life will lose it. And those who lose their life will keep it. In the kingdom, those who live for self will die. And those who die to self will live. In the kingdom, those who are strong in themselves are weak, and those who are weak in themselves are made strong. And what we see in each of these Beatitudes is that the life of a person in the kingdom of God, the way that they think, the way that they behave, the way that they operate as a human being is completely, totally, 180 degrees opposite from the world's way of thinking. And that is why I said it is only a work of grace and by the Spirit of God that we can ever expect to live out the Beatitudes that we're studying this morning. And this morning we'll be focusing on verses 9 through 12, but I don't want to just jump into those verses because the Beatitudes are meant to be taken as a set. They are meant to be taken as a whole. They're not meant to be split up from each other. So let's start in verse 1, Matthew chapter 5. Follow along as I read. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And last time we said that this is where it all starts for the Christian. There is a reason why this one comes first. Those who would enter God's kingdom and those who presently live in God's kingdom must be poor in spirit. And we said that this, is a, this meant a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. Being poor in spirit is the recognition that you are destitute of any righteous thing. It means that you recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt. You are naked and empty. It means that spiritually speaking, you have nothing to offer for yourself. And this poverty of spirit is where every Christian who has ever lived must start, with a sense of helplessness and desperation. And that is followed by the next one, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We said that this is not a mourning in a natural sense or a worldly sense. It is a spiritual mourning over sin. As you are poor in spirit and as you are aware of your sinfulness and unworthiness, and helplessness before God, you become aware of that sinfulness before him, and it causes you to mourn because of it. It is that mourning that David experienced in Psalm 119 when he said, my eyes shed streams of tears because I do not keep your law. Or as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 7, it is a godly grief or godly mourning that leads you to repentance, and that repentance brings comfort. And thirdly, the person who is poor in spirit and mourning over their sin is inevitably meek, verse 5. And the meek person is quiet, they're gentle, they're mild, they're lowly. It's somebody who's kind. It's somebody who is submissive. It's somebody who is willing to turn the other cheek. That's the root concept. And meek people are not always trying to defend themselves. They're not always trying to Um, defend their dignity. They will be patient and long-suffering, especially when they suffer unjustly. This is the meek person. And that leads us to the fourth characteristic of the kingdom, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And what Jesus is getting at is it's not enough to simply mourn over past sin. We must also hunger for present and future righteousness. And remember, this person is poor in spirit, so he knows he has no righteousness of his own. The fact of that is ever before him. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't want it. He hungers for it. As the natural man hungers for food and water, so the Christian man hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That righteousness which he knows is foreign to his own self, but that he must have. And after having experienced the flow of the first four Beatitudes, this person has no doubt been regenerated by the Spirit of God and thereby experienced the mercy of God in Christ. And this person is now a merciful person, verse 7. This person who was once calloused, this person who was once indifferent, this person who was once hard-hearted to the people that he comes in contact with has now tasted the mercy of God to forgive him of his sins when he didn't deserve it at all, and he sees that reality, and he cherishes it, and he is now someone who is compassionate. He is now someone who is sympathetic. He feels a sense of pity for people in a poor condition, and that pity results in a desire to relieve that suffering. 
Also, he is forgiving to others that he comes in contact with. He doesn't lord offenses over people's head. He is merciful. And finally, in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the people who have gone through these first Beatitudes have inevitably had their heart purified. They will have cried out to God like David did in Psalm 51, when he said, create in me a clean heart, O God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, O God. The pure in heart are people like David who in Psalm 86.11 says, unite my heart to fear your name. In other words, they recognize that their heart is divided and they ask God to unite it to him. In other words, make it holy to you, God. Make it one. Make it pure. Make it single to you. Take out the parts of my heart that are turned towards wanting to know sin and the world and its pleasures, and instead let it be turned solely to God, sincere, with pure motivations, and entirely free from any hypocrisy. This is what it means to be pure in heart. And when they do this by faith, Acts 15.9 says that their hearts will be purified. Now that is a very high-level overview of what we studied in the last two lessons. And we needed to do that because, as I said, all of these Beatitudes relate to one another. And hopefully you'll see that when we get to the end. These Beatitudes are putting together for us a composite picture of the Christian man or woman. All right? So they're not meant to be isolated. Now, we have the first six Beatitudes fresh on our minds. So let's pick up where we'll be for the rest of our time this morning in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus says, another defining characteristic of the person in his kingdom, of the happy person, of the blissful person, is that they are a peacemaker. They're peaceful. They're at peace first with God and then with men. And we're immediately reminded how utterly different these Beatitudes are from the world. Our world is in utter chaos. There is perhaps nothing more than our world needs right now than peace. Take, for example, the war in Russia and Ukraine and all the hostility that, that that brings. Homicides by private guns in America are out of control. Our political system has perhaps never been more hostile than it is now. We don't have peace internally either, Nearly 800,000 people committed suicide last year. So people are warring within themselves too. Divorce rates are at nearly 50%, so we're warring within our homes as well. We have a lack of unity within families, some unable to even gather over a Christmas meal. Maybe some of you have even experienced that this, this past holiday. There is no peace. We have no ability to get along with each other. Everything and every relationship is fragile. But what's interesting, though, is that despite the lack of peace in our world today, the world and its leaders have throughout history tried to create peace through organizations and through politicians and through things like the United Nations or the World Peace Council and these things. But it is all in vain. The world can never produce peace. If it could, it would have done so already. Did you know that there are nearly 1,400 peace organizations in the world? 
So the world recognizes there is a lack of peace, and they are very eager to do something about it, but as I said, it is utterly futile. So the first question I want to ask this morning is this, why is there a lack of peace in our world? And I'm here to suggest to you that there's only one answer to that question, and it's the answer that you find in the Bible. There is perhaps nothing else that explains the present state of our world and its lack of peace, such as this book. So what is the problem? Well, we can put it simply like this. All man's troubles are due to his wrong relationship with God. That's the trouble, and that's the whole of the trouble. You see, the peace organizations that the world have created are looking horizontally. They're looking at one another, but they forget God. And that's why all they do is futile. The lack of peace in our world is not primarily between man and man. It's, be, it's between man and God. So we must start there. The prophet Isaiah sums it up perfectly when he says this. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Isaiah 48, 22. You might want to write that down. That's a key verse. There is no peace says the Lord for the wicked. True statement. It's true on the spiritual level and on the, on the personal level and on the national. However advanced, however educated, however wealthy, however important nations or individuals may be, they will never know peace while they are wicked. You see, it is because of a wrong relationship to God and this is where all of man's trouble stems from. The truth about man is this, that he was made to be God-centered. That was part of his very nature and being. Read it in Genesis 1 and 2. Man did not make himself. He hasn't just happened. Man was created and made by God in his image, in his likeness, and he can only function truly and happily as long as he obeys the laws of his make, the laws of his nature. And he was made in such a manner that he can only function truly when he obeys God's laws. Now, man objects to this, of course. He doesn't like it. But that's exactly where man gets into trouble. Man's happiness always depends on his relationship to God. Man, having been made by God and for God, can only live in his truest sense when he is living in right relationship to God. Man was never meant to be master. He was meant to be servant. He was meant to be in a position of obedience. And if he would have done so, he would have continued to live in peace. But the problem is, man doesn't like this. He is rebellious to God. Instead of living for God as his servant, he asserts himself. Instead of obeying God and submitting to him, he obeys himself and submits to himself. In other words, the world is in its utter chaos this morning, with its endless divisions and conflicts and wars, because man, instead of being God-centered, has become self-centered. Why is there a lack of peace? Because man, in his rebellion against God, has become self-centered rather than God-centered. That's the whole problem of peace. Self-centeredness. And it wouldn't be too bad if it was just some of us that were this way, or one or two of us, but the problem is, is that this is the 
fact of every human being since the fall of Adam. And what happens when you have a whole world of people that are only concerned with themselves, with their own interests, everyone by nature looking out for themselves, for their own outcomes, for their own pleasures, and success? Well, what happens? You get conflict. You're bound to get jealousy, envy, strife, quarrels, hatred of other people, competition, resentment, wars. It's literally inevitable. But you see, if man would have never rebelled against his maker, if he would have just humbled himself to submit to God and to obey him, we wouldn't have any of these problems. But he didn't. The truth is, all the lack of peace in our lives and in our world is because man is in a state of sin. He has a bad heart, and instead of being God-centered, he is self-centered. And that's, it's that basic selfishness that creates every level of strife and lack of unity in our world. And this is, it's at the heart of every person. In Romans chapter 3, when Paul is right in the middle of the section talking about how every person is condemned by God, guilty before God. He says this little phrase in verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. So this is the case of every person. But you see, that's a problem because in Matthew chapter five, verse nine, as we just read, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. So we must ask the question, who is this peacemaker that Jesus talks about? And what is he like? Well, first, we must make note of the fact that like so many of these Beatitudes, this is a description given elsewhere in the Bible of God himself. For example, in Hebrews 13, 20, it says that it was the God of peace who brought from the dead our Lord Jesus. In Romans 15, 33, Paul says, may the God of peace be with you all. And in 16, 20, he says, again, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And that's just a couple I picked from the New Testament. Uh, there's many more, and the Old Testament is loaded with many statements about God being the source of peace and the author of peace. So God is highly concerned with peace. So to make peace basically means to be a bridge builder. To take two separated parties, to build a bridge, and to bring, in order to bring them together, um, in order that they may be reconciled, as the Bible puts it. To be a peacemaker means that you are something of a mediator between two separated groups in order that they may be brought together in harmony and in truth and in righteousness. Now, God is peace, and thus he is the perfect peacemaker. You say, how is God a peacemaker? How is he the peacemaker of all peacemakers? Well, in Colossians 1.20, we have this glorious statement by Paul. He says that Jesus, having made peace, how? through the blood of his cross, was able to reconcile all things to himself. You see, it was the cross of Christ that made peace for you and for me. Turn quickly to Ephesians chapter two, verse 13. Ephesians chapter two, and I'll show you this again. Ephesians two, verse 13, and there's many places we can go, but I just wanna show you a couple of them. Ephesians 2, verse 13, he says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Then this, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Christ is our perfect peacemaker. And in the cross of Christ, he made peace for you and for me. You say, how could the cross be peace? It doesn't seem like peace to me. Well, two reasons. One, in Jesus' death, he satisfied the wrath of God against sinners. And two, the cross of Christ is our peace because it provided the righteousness that alone makes real peace. So God, in the death and resurrection of his son, is the ultimate peacemaker because he satisfied the wrath of God towards rebellious sinners, and he provides the righteousness that is necessary in order for true peace to be present. And he does all of this graciously to those who believe in him. And that is a key clarification of this true peace versus false peace. True peace is always a byproduct of righteousness. I said this at the beginning, but it's worth repeating. Back to our our Isaiah verse. Why is man not at peace? The answer is because he's not righteous. I quoted it earlier. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. He could be very clever. He could be very educated. He could be very wise. But there's no peace. Because he's not righteous. He's not in right relationship to God. Peace is always a byproduct of that. Peace is always a byproduct of holiness, of purity, of right relationship to God, and obedience to God's holy laws and commands, just like I said at the very beginning. The fruit that produces true peace, listen carefully, is righteousness and truth. And that is exactly what we, as unworthy sinners, have in Jesus Christ. And hopefully you see that true peacemaking starts with the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about making peace. You see, there was a day when you warred against God. There was a day when you and I fought against God. But when Christ's righteousness was imputed to you by faith, you had peace with God. And so the gospel is the gospel of peace. And I would hasten to add that in a biblical way, and I'm quoting from someone else here, peace is not the absence of conflict as much as it is the presence of righteousness that causes right relationships, end quote. Let me read that again. Peace is not the absence of conflict as much as it is the presence of righteousness that causes right relationships. What a wonderful clarification. Did you get that? Righteousness, purity, and truth are the key to true peace. True peace, in other words, is not sought at the price of sin or unrighteousness. True peace is not sought at the price of error. True peace is not sought at the price of truth. Hebrews 12, 14 puts it this way, follow peace with all men and holiness. In other words, it's not true peace because you don't confront sin. It's not true peace because you don't confront error. You just let it exist in this superficial kind of truce. And so many people throughout history, throughout the church, 
and those outside of the church, they try and take this verse and they make it say that Christians or peacemakers are these wishy-washy people who have no convictions and who for the sake of no conflict will lay aside the truth. No, that is the opposite of biblical peace. Biblical peace not only is the absence of conflict, as I said, is the presence of righteousness, of purity, and of truth, so that the two parties can genuinely embrace each other in true peace and in right relationship. And it is seen, this is seen nowhere more clearly than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So no one will ever be a peacemaker unless he's first made peace with God through Jesus, because then and only then does God impute righteousness to your account, which is necessary for true peace. Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So the first thing a peacemaker is characterized by is he's made peace with God through Christ's reconciling death, receiving the righteousness of God by faith. That's the first requirement. I love James 318, he says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And you say, that is exactly what, Jesus, what God did in Christ in sending him. He provided a harvest of righteousness by making peace with God the Father, and now we can be in right relationship to him. Now, with all of that as our foundation for understanding this verse, I want to focus on what these peacemakers are like, practically speaking. Now, they're at peace with God through Christ. That's the first requirement. But how do they live? What are their characteristics? Well, if a self-centered heart is the key problem of peace, it seems to me that the first characteristic of a peacemaker is that he is someone who has an entirely new view of himself. The peacemaker has come to see that in a sense, his miserable, wretched self is not worth bothering about at all. He has come to see his natural self to have no rights or privileges. It doesn't deserve anything. If you have seen yourself as poor in spirit, if you have mourned because of the blackness of your heart, if you have truly seen yourself and have hungered and thirsted after righteousness, you will not stand any longer on your rights or your privileges. You will not be asking, well, what about me in this situation? What about me? You will have forgotten self, and you will, have, you will bring the gospel to bear in every situation. And that's the first practical characteristic. Before one can be a peacemaker, one must really be entirely delivered from self, from self-interest, from self-concern. You must not be sensitive all of the time. You must not be sensitive about yourself or touchy about yourself. You must not be on the defensive all of the time, kind of like the meek person. They're not on the defensive all of the time. Perhaps the best explanation is this. The peacemaker is one who is not always looking at everything in terms of the effect it has upon himself. They are non-retaliatory people. They are meek people. And it is this basic inward principle of humility which is necessary for anyone to ever be a peacemaker. We see this, of course, nowhere more clearly than Christ. Why did he come into the world? 
Because God, though he is holy and righteous, is a God of peace. Where did discord and conflict come from? From man, from sin, from Satan. But our God of peace has not, if you like, stood upon his dignity. He has come, he has done something. He has humbled himself in his son in order to produce it. If God stood upon his rights and dignity, upon his person, the whole of mankind would be headed for eternal judgment. It is because God is a God of peace that he sent his son and provided a way of salvation for us. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? But he humbled himself. He did not think of self at all. He did not have to come, but he did because he is the prince of peace. He did not clutch at his rights. He did not hold on to the prerogative of deity and of eternity. So then, to be a peacemaker is to be like Christ in this way. And that is why, by the way, that peacemakers are called children of God. What they do is repeat what Christ has done. And perhaps I can summarize all of that with this statement. When, when, when self dies, peace becomes a reality. And self dies in Christ. When self dies, peace becomes a reality. And self dies in Christ. Now what else is he like, practically speaking? James 1.19, I think, gives us a clue. He says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Imagine how much more peace there would be if we could just learn to control our tongues. Be slow to speak, James says, and you'll be making peace. When someone says something to the peacemaker that is offensive about him personally, he doesn't speak. He knows it's not worth it. And remember, he's not concerned with himself anyways. Or when someone says something harmful about someone else, the peacemaker keeps his mouth shut. He doesn't go and spread the harmful gossip. He may be tempted to, but for the sake of peace, he does not. Well, this is something behind the meaning of our Lord's statement in Matthew 5, 9, but what is the promise attached to this beatitude? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that is one of the most glorious statements in all of Scripture. What does it mean to be a son or daughter of God? Well, it means that you are his child. In the New Testament, it uses the word adoption. So God has literally adopted you into his family. And Paul summarizes it in Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. In other words, if you've gone through these beatitudes, if your life is led by the Spirit of God, if you want to please him, Paul says that you are a son of God. And then he he expands the thought in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then this, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So he has a personal, eternal Love for his children. And not only will they be eternally rewarded, but in this life, Paul says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. So, what an incredible reality for God's children. And this, 
With this seventh beatitude, it seems like we have kind of completed this complete picture of the Christian man or woman, doesn't it? But there's one more attitude that Christ must illustrate for those listening to him on that Galilean hillside in order for this picture to be complete. With that in mind, we come to the eighth and final beatitude, which will conclude our study. Matthew chapter 5 Verse 10, follow along with me. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, Jesus has been describing the various qualities that his followers manifest, and it is no less than that with this one as well. And in fact, I think this is the most searching of all the Beatitudes that have come before it. And I'll summarize this Beatitude like this, and then I'll expand it. If you live a life like Christ, it is inevitable that you will suffer the persecution of Christ. If you live a life like Christ, it is inevitable that you will suffer the persecution of Christ. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you will die like he did, but the attitude behind this principle is that you are constantly willing to accept whatever comes as a result of living the beatitude kind of life. You might can translate it this way. They have been and continue to be willing to be persecuted. Here's what I believe Jesus is saying by putting this one last. If, if you are one who lives a beatitude kind of life, if you are one who by the grace of God manifests kingdom character, if you are one who lives the way God wants you to live, you're going to find that there will be a process of pain and suffering involved. And this concept is not new. This should not be a surprise to his disciples who were listening to that, him that day, and it shouldn't be a surprise to us either. Now, I want to illustrate this using some simple questions. And the first thing we need to clarify is the reason for the persecution. Why specifically are Christians persecuted? Now, to do that, I want to start with some negatives. What does this not mean? Well, first, and this may seem obvious, but it needs to be said, Jesus does not mean people who are suffering persecution because of their own folly. We can bring endless suffering on ourselves things that are needless and silly, that are our own fault. We can create difficulties for ourselves, but that is not what our Lord has in mind here. Neither does this mean suffering persecution for certain political reasons, or a social reason, or maybe even some cause that might be noble, even. No. Why are Christians persecuted, Jesus? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is the key to getting this passage. It is because of righteousness that we suffer persecution. Paul told Timothy the exact same thing when he said in 2 Timothy 3.12, write that reference down, 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it is expected. It is inevitable. Why are Christians persecuted by the world? It is for righteousness' sake. 
Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus expands this in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Whose account? Whose account? Christ's account. Let me tell you something. Being righteous or practicing righteousness really means being like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So you know why they persecute Christians? They really don't hate you. That's comforting, isn't it? They really don't hate you. Who do they hate? Christ. And it really isn't you that they resent, it's the life that you live. When Jesus came into the world, the world saw a perfect man, and then all of a sudden it blew apart, Jesus did, all of their self-confidence. And in the face of his absolute perfection, it exposed their sinfulness. When they stood face to face with Jesus, they felt rebuked, and so they killed him. And as you and I allow Christ to live through us, we will set a standard that they can't attain, and because they can't attain that standard, they will desire to remove the standard so that they can remain in the contentedness of their delusion. We suffer persecution for righteousness' sake. And again, this should be nothing new. This is a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible from the beginning to the end. Take Genesis, for example. Genesis chapter 4. You have the story of Cain and Abel. We all know the story. Cain gets jealous, murders his brother Abel. Why does he do that? 1 John 3.12 tells us explicitly why he does that. He says this, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So John says, it's simple. Abel's deeds were righteous. Cain's were not. Cain felt jealousy over that, which led to anger, which led to hate, which led to murder. Who else experienced this? Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses had to suffer affliction with the people of God, then compromise himself in the pleasures of the Egyptian society. So David, David also suffered persecution by the hands of Saul. And then there's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was not only ignored, he was also mistreated by those to whom he brought God's message. Persecuted by those he was trying to guide and to save. Sound familiar? He was beaten and put in the stocks, Jeremiah 20. He was threatened with a death sentence, Jeremiah 26. And in chapter 38, he was thrown into a cistern where there was, quote, no water, only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. And then do you remember Daniel? How he was persecuted. Thrown into a pit of lions for taking a bold stand for God. These are some of the most faithful men in the Old Testament, and every one of them verify the biblical teaching. They were persecuted, not because they were difficult, not because they were overzealous, but because they were righteous. And in the New Testament, we find exactly the same thing. Take the apostles, for example. Just look at the book of Acts alone, and you will see it plain as day. The church is born in the second chapter of Acts, and in chapter 3, Peter preaches a sermon. Now, by chapter 4, the apostles are arrested and put in jail by the, by the Jewish authority. 
In chapter five, they're put in jail again. By chapter seven, Stephen is stoned to death by a mob after a false trial before the Jewish high court. By chapter eight, persecution breaks out against all believers, spearheaded by a man named Saul. We come into chapter nine and we have the conversion of Saul into Paul and the Lord says to him in Acts 9, 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And immediately upon Paul's conversion, he faces threats of persecution from the very Jews in Damascus that he was, where he was converted. And he, of course, continues preaching the gospel and presenting Christ throughout the rest of the book, facing persecution and threats at every single turn. And I wonder whether, whether there has ever been a man persecuted more despite his gentleness and his kindness and his meekness and his righteousness than the man Paul. But then I think about that for a second. And of course, the supreme example is our Lord himself. Here he is in all of his absolute, utter perfection. His gentleness and his meekness and his love and his mercy, the literal embodiment of righteousness and truth. There was never anyone more merciful and forgiving than Jesus Christ. There was never anyone a greater peacemaker than Jesus Christ. And for some people, they responded to that forgiveness. And for some people, they entered into that peace. But even though Jesus was the most loving, selfless, gracious, kind, merciful person who ever lived, they spit in his face, and they put a crown of thorns on his head, and they mocked him, and they scoffed him, and they nailed him to a Roman cross. And every went, everywhere he went, he seemed to create antagonism. Why? Because he was confrontive about the truth. And his righteous life served as a constant rebuke to those around him, especially the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees. And where you have righteousness, you have truth. Righteousness and truth can never be separated. And it is fascinating to me that the believer who lives out these beatitudes will be both a peacemaker and one who creates persecution. You say, what does that mean? Well, Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, another good one to write down. He says this, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a what? A sword. You say, wait a minute. Didn't we just finish talking about how we're to be peacemakers? Well, yes. But the Christian, just, at, just like his Lord, will make both peace and make trouble. The believer is a peacemaker, and yet the believer is also one who stirs up strife. There is this constant contrast where the believer is a peacemaker who is able to make a man at peace with God by the presentation of the gospel, and yet as he presents the gospel and exposes sin for what it truly is, as he is unwavering in his commitment to the biblical truth, as he is firm in his convictions about the gospel and of sin and the standard of righteousness set in the scripture, he is one who will inevitably stir up contention. And that is why we said that you cannot have true peace without righteousness. And where righteousness exists, sin has to be dealt with. And when sin is dealt with, there is persecution by people who reject that message. That is the key to these two Beatitudes. That links them together 
in this perfect harmony. And so Jesus, in this final beatitude, tells us this. If, as a result of the working of the Spirit of God, you begin to live a beatitude kind of life, if you hunger and thirst after a righteousness you know you need but you cannot get on your own, you will see God begin to grant you those righteous fruits in your life, and as a result of that righteousness, you will be persecuted. So expect it. It is inevitable. Don't be surprised. And he told his disciples the exact same thing in John 15, 18. In fact, why don't you turn there? John 15, 18. John 15, 18. There are many passages we could go to, but I'm just trying to pick out the best ones to explain this text. All right, John 15, verse 18. Jesus says this, and he's speaking to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus says in effect, we're hated by the world because we're just not part of it. The world is going a certain way, and we're not going that way. The world believes certain things, and we don't believe those things. The world accepts certain things, and we do not. We are an alien, isolated entity existing within another system, and we do not integrate with the world. And that is exactly how Jesus was and all of the other godly people who came before him and after him. Now, if you want, you can escape. You can go through your whole life and never be persecuted. You say, really? How? Well, in my preparation for this, I came across somewhat of a game plan for how to avoid persecution, and I want to share it with you. I'm going to read this to you, an excerpt from a sermon on this passage. He says this, first of all, approve of all the world's standards. Approve of all the world's standards. Fit right in. Then accept the world's morals and the world's ethics. Just join right in. Live like the world lives. Don't tell people they're sinners. Don't tell people they're lost without Jesus Christ. Don't tell people they're doomed to death. And for goodness sakes, don't talk about hell. Don't preach and teach that Jesus Christ is the only way and every other system of religion is a lie. Don't separate yourself from the world and all of its activities and all of its enterprises. Go along with the world, laugh at its jokes, enjoy its entertainment, smile when it mocks God. Let them take his name in vain and just be ashamed to take a stand for Christ and I'll promise you, you'll never be persecuted, end quote. I think he hits the nail on the head. And I'll just add... When you're done doing that, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith or not, because there might be a good question whether or not you truly are. This is a strong truth. This is a strong beatitude. But we can't lower the standard that Christ sets. So if you desire to live this way, you should also remember Luke 9, 26, when Jesus said this, For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him will the Son of Man be what? What does it say? Ashamed. 
Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. I truly believe this beatitude is challenging ideas as to what the Christian is. In Luke 6, 26, our Lord said this very interesting statement. He says this, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Well, isn't that interesting? And yet, is not our idea of what we call the perfect Christian nearly always that he is a popular man who never offends anybody and is so easy to get on with? But if this beatitude is true, that is not the real Christian because the real Christian is a man who is not praised by everybody. They did not praise our Lord and they will not praise the man who is like him. When you are popular with everybody, then they don't know the truth about you. You've either masked your Christianity or you're not really a Christian at all. You fit right into the world. You see, this is why I say this is perhaps the most searching of all the Beatitudes that have come before it. Do you know what it is to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? Do you know what it is to be reviled on behalf of the name of Jesus? And this could take many forms. Maybe it's as simple as some of your coworkers whispering behind your back as you come into the room. Or maybe they do make public jokes about you, uh, something you believe about Christ. Or maybe your job is at stake because you won't bend on a certain moral issue. Or maybe it's even taking on the threats of, threats of vi- violence or acts of violence if you don't do something or live a certain way or say something. And now, if you're not per- experiencing persecution, is your heart's posture set towards accepting it whenever it does come? Because, as we've seen, at some point in your life, it will if you are a Christian. Now, we've seen that persecution for the godly is expected. And we've seen the reason the godly experience persecution, righteousness. Now, I want to transition to the way in which the Christian faces these things. Our Lord tells us in verses 11 and 12 how, are we, how we are to do so. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You say, rejoice and be glad. I'm to rejoice when I'm being falsely reviled for Christ? You mean I can't even retaliate when it's a false accusation? You mean I can't even have a spirit of resentment? Now this to the, the natural man is an utter impossibility and he will never understand it. So here again, these beatitudes have shown us the absolute, utter difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. To rejoice and be exceedingly glad in these circumstances is something that the non-Christian will never do. That, however, is the position to which the Christian is called. And our Lord says we must become like him in these matters. And the author of Hebrews puts it in one verse. He says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now I want to clarify what Jesus means by using a couple of negatives. The Christian is not to rejoice at the mere fact of persecution. We should not rejoice in, per, in our persecution for its own sake. That surely, surely was the spirit of the Pharisees, and it's something that we should never do. 
if we rejoice in persecution in and of itself, like if we say, ah, well, I rejoice that I am so much better than these other people, and that is why they are persecuting me, immediately we have become Pharisees. And that is certainly not the spirit that Christ has in mind. Nor are we to seek persecution out. We don't pursue persecution. We don't have some type of weird complex. But when it comes, we don't run from it. Now for the positive. What does our Lord really mean? Why ever would we rejoice at such things? Well, the first reason is this. The persecution which the Christian is receiving for Christ's sake is, number one, proof to the Christian of who he is and what he is. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, if you find yourself being persecuted and maligned falsely for Christ's sake, you know you are like one of the prophets, who are God's chosen servants, who are now with God rejoicing in glory. Now that is something to rejoice about. Jesus says, in effect, you're in good company. When you represent me and my message faithfully and suffer rejection accordingly, you identify with leaders like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, like Isaiah, you are in good company, which is proof that you are indeed a Christian. The second reason we rejoice through persecution for Christ is because it is proof of where we are going. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. If this happens to you, Christ says, in effect, it is just the hallmark of the fact that you are destined for heaven. By persecuting you, the world is just telling you that you do not belong to it, that you are someone who is separate from the world system. You belong to another realm, thus proving the fact that you are going to heaven. And that, according to Christ, is something which causes us always to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. So then, here within these Beatitudes emerges yet another great test of the Christian life and profession. Are you being persecuted for righteousness' sake due to living a life like your Lord? If so, do you have your affection so set on eternity and on the reward of heaven that you rejoice because you know that that is proof of your salvation? Says Paul in Colossians, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Or in 2 Corinthians when he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. What is this reward of heaven like? I think that's another important question. Well, I can only say to the extent that the scripture has revealed, and that is that we shall see him as he is and worship him in his glorious presence. Our very bodies will be changed and glorified with no sickness or disease. There will be no sorrow. There will be no pain, no tears. All will be perpetual glory. Unmixed joy, glory, holiness, purity, and wonder. That is what is awaiting us. That is what is yours and mine in Christ. As surely as we are alive in this moment. How foolish we are that we do not spend our time thinking about that. 
Instead, we cling to this chaotic and unhappy world, and we fail to think on these things and to meditate on them. We are all going on to that if we are Christians, to that amazing glory and purity and happiness and joy. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Do you see how this changes our perspective? If people are unkind and cruel and spiteful, and if we're being persecuted, well then we must say to ourselves, ah, those unhappy people, they're doing this because they do not know him, and therefore they do not understand me. They are incidentally proving to me that I belong to him, that I am going to be with him and share in that joy with him. Therefore, far from resenting it, far from wanting to retaliate, it makes me realize all the more what is awaiting me. All this is but temporary and passing. It cannot affect eternity. Is that your perspective? So this morning we've covered a lot, and I want to end with asking a series of questions centered around the Beatitudes that we've studied this morning. So number one, how can I know that I'm a peacemaker in the way that Jesus means it in Matthew 5, 9? Here's the questions. Have you experienced the mercy of God? Paul says in Romans 5 that we have peace with God when we have been justified by faith. That's where it all starts. Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So in other words, Christ, in his finished work on the cross, has done everything necessary for you and I to have peace with God, to be in right relationship to him, if we would only cast ourselves upon him in repentance and faith. And you will never be a peacemaker until you have first have the righteousness of Christ applied to your life by faith. A second question. Are you totally devoid of self? From self-interest? From self-concern? Because the peacemaker is. Can you say with Paul, oh, wretched man that I am. The peacemaker has an entirely new view of himself, and frankly, he's just not that concerned with it. When someone insults you personally, are you immediately on the defense, ready to pounce on the person because they have defamed your dignity in person? How dare they, you know? Or are you someone who seeks to understand the world in light of this biblical teaching? And instead of attacking the person back and increasing the conflict, you are concerned with their soul. You understand that this person is being governed by the God of this world. You see that this person is a victim of self and of Satan. This person is hellbound, and therefore you have pity on him and mercy on him. And the moment you begin to look at the world and people like that, you are in a position to help him, and you are in the position to share the gospel with him and to make peace with him. So if you are a peacemaker, your entire view of yourself has changed and your entire view of other people have changed. You view any and every situation in light of the gospel of peace. Another question. Do you know what it is to be hated and despised for the sake of Christ? Have you ever experienced that in your life? How about this one? 
Are you taking a bold stand for the truth? Do you know what it is to live such a godly life that you become a rebuke to, pe- to people around you? Not because you're obnoxious, not because you're prideful, not because you're demanding, not because you talk too much or you're annoying or anything like that, but because there's too much of Christ manifest in you. Or do you instead hide your Christianity because you're afraid of what may come? Maybe you haven't yet experienced persecution. And if you haven't, if that's you, are you willing to? Are you ready to suffer persecution for the sake of Christ? We've seen from our text, it is inevitable. Acts 21, 13, Paul said, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Can you relate to Paul's attitude there? Are you so on fire for Christ that you are willing to pick up your cross and follow him no matter the cost? Or are you neutral? Are you lukewarm at best? A final few questions. Are you so caught up in the eternal and in the reward of heaven that you literally rejoice when persecution comes? The apostles in Acts 5.41 were leaving prison and it says they were, quote, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Do you have that kind of eternal, Christ-centered attitude? If there was ever a man who lived this way, it was the Apostle Paul. He says this in Philippians 3, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Christ was Paul's reward, nothing else. That was his ambition, Christ-likeness. Conformity into his Lord's image. Is that your ambition as well? Can you relate to these beatitudes? Do you see little hints of them in your life? I pray that we would examine ourselves, and let's pray. Father, after having reflected on the Beatitudes this morning, I come to you with a deep sense of inadequacy in my own life. It only takes a cursory look at these Beatitudes to know that we, in and of ourselves, can't qualify for your kingdom. So remind us, Lord, that you came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. For Lord, In our lives, there are things that are not pure. There are those times in our lives where we aren't meek. There are those times in our lives where we're resentful, not merciful. And so I pray that you'll help us by the word of God and the hands of the Holy Spirit to repent of these things and to trust you. And Lord, would you give us the grace needed to be genuine peacemakers? Sometimes it's 
so hard with our self-centered flesh that's still hanging on. But I pray that as far as it depends on us, that we would live in harmony with one another. And Lord, help us not to sacrifice peace on the altar of truth. May we instead live bold, spirit-filled, truth-filled, righteous lives which resemble our Lord's life and confront sin for what it really is. And when persecution from the world comes, may we rejoice because it is proof that we are indeed inheriting your kingdom. And for Christians who do not know what it is to come out and be separate from the world, to pay the price, to live the life that you've asked us to live, may this be the time that they commit to do that. And God, help us not to lower the standard. Help us to be conformed Help us not to be conformed to the world, but to transform the world by being conformed to you. In Christ's name, amen.